My name is Steven. I'm the young adult pastor here. And um, when I went through my senior year, uh, I did what most seniors in high school do, you know, visit colleges, go on tours of colleges. And um, I grew up not wanting to go to this school in Southwest Virginia, mostly because all of my mom's side of the family went to Virginia Tech. And so every family reunion, every family gathering, all I heard about was Virginia Tech Hokies. But it wasn't Virginia Tech Hokies. It was because they're all from like the real part of Virginia, like the central, the south part of Virginia. You know, Northern Virginia is almost like a different state. It was Virginia Tech Hokies. And just hearing that, how great the Hokies were in football and how maroon and orange fell out of heaven, they're God's favorite colors. I just got so sick and tired about hearing about the Hokies. And so I just vowed I would not go there. But I did my due diligence as a senior in high school, visited all the Virginia schools, and I stepped foot on that campus. And I had this tour guide who was a student, you know, he was taking a bunch of us around this school. And, um, you know, all of a sudden I got uh, a little taste of that maroon and orange. And my eyes were opened, and the Holy Spirit, I started seeing like a campus that was full of school spirit. I saw a community together. I saw great academics, and walking around the campus, I fell in love with the, with the gray stone architecture. And looking back, really that tour was the deciding factor in me going to that school. And I don't know if you've ever been on a college tour or any kind of tour, whether it's a tour of a city or a town or a museum. But a tour guide wants to give you an experience where through the sights and the sounds that you experience, you fall in love with this city or this college or this museum. And tonight, I want to take you on a tour of the throne room of God. The title of this sermon is Thrones and Phones. And if I had to give it a subtitle, I would give it beholding a glorious God in an age of distraction. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God who reveals who you are. And Lord, we're asking you to reveal the throne room. God, that you would open our eyes, that you would do what we can't do in the natural, but that you would open us, our eyes, our ears to see and to hear what's going on right now in heaven, and to be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So whenever you go on a tour, it's important to do a little background research. That way you know what questions to ask, what to look for. And so I'm going to give you a little background on Revelation chapter 4. But before I do, let's read it together. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's 11 verses. It says, After this I looked and behold a door, standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the, the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation is a part of a genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. And that word apocalyptic means revelation, disclosure, or an unveiling. And the apocalyptic literature was this genre in which these authors were trying to explain a dimension other than the one that we live in right now. It's full of imagery and metaphor about heaven and earth, about God and Satan, about angels and demons, about the time now and a time to come. And how do you describe a dimension that you've never been to? How do you describe a God who's limitless with finite words? How do you describe a picture of heaven that none, none of us have been to in bodily form. Well, you have to use a bunch of images, symbols, metaphors. You got to use numerology, which is significant numbers like 7 and 40 and 24 and 666. All of these are an attempt for our finite minds to comprehend something that is infinite. And Revelation is a difficult book to understand because of those similes and metaphors and allusions but it's also difficult because there are more Old Testament allusions in the book of Revelation than all of the New Testament books combined. And most of us don't know our Old Testament really well, which poses a problem because a lot of the references and allusions go right, of our head, right over our head. In fact, my, the campus minister of my wife after she got saved in college told her, you know, read the Bible, but just kind of stay away from Revelation. It's too hard to understand. It's confusing. Just stick with the other 65 books. And while we may never say that verbally, that's kind of how we treat Revelation. It's that weird book in the end that uh, maybe someone else can tell us about. Maybe we can watch a quick YouTube video and have the mysteries unveiled to us. But Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the book says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a good enough reason to study the book of Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus he has something that he wants to disclose or reveal to us. But not only is he the one who reveals what's to come, the book is a revelation of who he is. So if we want to know more of who Jesus is, we got to study the book of Revelation. In fact, the first chapter of the book of Revelation, John, the writer of the book of Revelation, the youngest disciple, has this vision of Jesus Christ. And in that first chapter, Jesus is revealed as Christ as a faithful witness, as a ruler, as a judge, 
as the son of man, as a priest, as a son of God, among other things. And then in Revelation 2 and 3, there are these seven letters. And John was writing to the seven churches in what we consider Asia Minor, which is, uh, was, at the time was, a Ro- was controlled by the Romans. And so there are these seven churches and these seven letters written to the seven churches. And they're written not just by John, they're written by Jesus Christ. He's addressing these seven churches. So after this opening vision in chapter one, after these seven letters in chapters two and three, we find ourselves in chapter four. And it begins chapter four, verse one. I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open or your phones because we're just gonna go right verse by verse on this tour. It says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Prior to this vision, John must have felt like the door to heaven was close to him because he was stranded on the island of Patmos. The reason being is that during that time, there was this emperor named Domitian. And Domitian had started an uh, increasing persecution against the Christians during that time. It wasn't as bad as Nero in that he wasn't lighting people uh, alive like torches and wasn't throwing them into the Roman Colosseum, but he was still killing, crucifying Christians and uh, persecuting them. In fact, he killed the, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, Jesus, who had a younger brother or cousin named Jude. All three of Jude's sons were killed by Domitian. So it was a grim time. These churches are writing with anxiety, with fear at their doorstep. And John, stranded on the island of Patmos, courtesy of the same Roman emperor, is wondering where God is. He'd already been boiled alive. Been boiled alive, and now he's stranded on this island with some other uh, criminals of that Roman Empire. It says, in the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. This is the voice of Jesus. And he's inviting John, and he's inviting the churches during John's time through John to leave the oppression, the anxiety, the fear, the uncertainty of their present circumstances and to come up to another dimension that's more real than the reality that they're living in. He's inviting them into the throne room of God to get a proper picture of their life, of their place in history, and most importantly, that their God is completely in control. See, there is an earthly dimension that we live in with nine to five jobs, which are really like seven to 7 p.m. jobs in this area, with conflicts with coworkers, with sickness, with disease, with confusion, with doubt. And then there's a reality in heaven that's happening simultaneously where God is seated on his throne. And we have the privilege as believers to come up like John came up, to get the perspective up there so that when we come down, we can move in faith. On any tour, there are sights. This tour is no different. Jesus is going to take John, he's going to show him the sights of heaven. And it says, verse 2, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So who is this person seated on the throne? 
Verse 3, he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So what's being described here is not, obviously, an earthly king. But it's God, and he has the appearance of jasper, a translucent jewel like a diamond that's associated with majesty and holiness and purity. This other jeweled carnelian was a deep red gem signifying God's wrath and his fiery desire for us. So you have God's holiness and you have his righteous anger. And those two words don't seem to fit together, righteous anger. But I can tell you, if you came up in the front row and slapped my wife upside the head, you'd experience my righteous anger. (laughs) And God has a righteous anger. He hates sin. He's passionate about justice. He's passionate about purity. It's who he is. But if you think about his holiness and his justice, this is the judgment seat of God. That's a little intimidating. That's a little unapproachable. And yet around the throne room of God, around God's throne, is a rainbow. Remember the story of Noah. God sent a rainbow to communicate his mercy. That the same God, and that's what we're scared of the book of Revelation often because we hear about these bowls and these seals and these trumpets of uh, pestilence and disease and, and people dying. And we're wondering, well, is this God, is this, gonna, this God going to turn on us? But around the throne of God for the believer is his mercy. When we approach him, we can approach him knowing that he's a God of grace. He's a God of forgiveness. On a tour, you're going to hear from the tour guide about some key figures or some witnesses that add to the credibility of that museum or that college or that city. Maybe the professors that work at a school and their prestige or the cumulative GPA of the incoming freshman class. It all adds credibility. And in this tour, you get the same credibility from witnesses. In fact, verse 4 says, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the throne were on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So around the throne room of God are 24 thrones, smaller thrones, clothed with these people sitting on the thrones clothed in white, completely pure. They've been clothed by God, given golden crowns. They're ruling with him. They're a part of royalty. Who are they? We don't exactly know. We know David had 24, he divided the priests into 24, so maybe they're a representation of the priesthood. We know there are 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles in the New Testament, so maybe they're angels representing the old and the new saints coming together. But whoever they are, they're appointed by God to worship him. Day and night, they worship him. Verse 5, from the throne come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. If you remember in Exodus chapter 19, Moses, before he gets the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, that mountain where he's supposed to meet with God, there's a thick cloud, there's rumblings, there's thunder. And if anyone got even near to the bottom of the mountain, they would be killed in a moment. That's the power of God. That's the power going through the throne room of God as John looks. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Which is a little confusing because if you come to the life of the spirit class on Saturday, you're going to learn that there's one Holy Spirit. And yet John sees seven spirits. But Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 talks about the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And these different manifestations of who the Holy Spirit is. He says the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom 
the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, seven things. And so John is seeing the full manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, before the throne there, were, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. I don't know, I've, I went deep sea fishing a couple years ago and I remember dry, uh, going out in this boat about an hour away and parking that boat in the middle of the ocean looking to, my, the, to the north, to the south, to the east and the west and all you can see is water. There's not any land shore in sight. And I was struck by the vastness of the sea. And yet Isaiah 40 talks about God who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, the point between his pinky finger and his thumb. Those are the waters compared to our vast God. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Sounds like a weird science fiction movie. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So we talked about the elders, but what is this strange sight of creatures, four living creatures? Well, ancient kings would have carvings of animals in their thrones. And those carvings symbolize something about their kingdom, maybe the stability of their kingdom or, or the longevity of the kingdom or the boldness of that king. For example, King Solomon had 12 lions carved on each side of his throne. But in the case of God's throne, the creatures aren't carved. They're living. Why? Because the Jewish rabbis saw the lion as the chief of wild beasts, the ox as the chief of domestic beasts, the eagle as the chief of birds, and the man as the chief of all intellectual creatures. And yet here they are assembled together around the throne, every type of created order of animate life, and they're all singing glory to God. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Why, are, why do these creatures have so many eyes? Well, if they just had two eyes, they wouldn't be able to take in the majesty of God. But they need something to cover their eyes because if they took in that much majesty of God, they would die. So they have six wings that cover their eyes because they need a shield of the glory and the majesty of who God is. Remember, Moses told God, or asked God, God, show me your glory. And God says, no, nah, I can't do that, player. Or you're going <laughs> to die. These living creatures, they need wings to cover their eyes. And when you go on a tour, it's not just the sights that you take in. Equally as impressionable are the sounds. I remember going to Virginia Tech, walking into the library, and you could hear the pin drop silence of students studying or going out to what's called the drill field, the center place of campus, this large open field, and hearing the sounds of students tossing a Frisbee or playing football. But nothing compared to Saturdays, five or six times a year, when 66,000 people would enter Lane Stadium, which was the football field. And they would play this song, called Enter Sandman by Metallica. And as they played this song, as the team came out of the tunnel, it's called one of the most fierce, most 
intimidating entrances in all of sports because as they would play this song, 66,000 people would jump up and down. And you could feel literally your seat rumbling underneath of you. And yet, Enter Sandman has nothing on the songs resounding in heaven. Four living creatures, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Why do they say holy three times, holy, holy, holy? Well, we, re- we repeat words for emphasis. We say something is far, far away. And God is so holy that the creatures must declare his holiness three times, a picture of completeness and absoluteness. Maybe they say it three times because there's the Father who's holy, the Son who's holy, and the Holy Spirit who's holy. Maybe they say it three times because God was holy from eternity past. He's holy now, and he'll always be holy. Maybe they say he's holy because when they get the first glance of his holiness, they're so undone, they say it again, but then they get another dimension or revelation of his holiness, so then they got to praise him again. And by the time they say it the second time, The third time, they're seeing even a greater dimension of holiness, so they just keep repeating it day and night over and over again for all eternity. The God who was and is and is to come, the eternal God is deserving of night and day, never ceasing eternal praise. The second sound, the elders, they're not going to be outdone. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Notice the elders fall down and they worship. That word worship in the original language from the Greek language in which the New Testament is written is proskuneo which is the word that we get the English word prostrate. So what's happening here is the elders are falling down to fall down. They're literally tripping over themselves, trying to get to the ground as quickly as they possibly can to behold God and how wonderful, how marvelous he is. It was a picture when they threw their crowns to the feet of God that wouldn't be unfamiliar to John's audience because the Roman emperor that I talked about earlier when he would conquer other enemy emperors. These enemy emperors would be forced to submit their crowns and throw, him, throw them at his feet. In fact, the Roman emperor Domitian had a phrase for himself. All the Roman emperors were considered gods after they died, but Domitian wasn't going to be outdone. He actually claimed himself to be worthy. He used that word worthy. People would acclaim to him that worthiness. And yet, God's making it very clear that those elders are singing of the only one who's found worthy. There's a number of songs in chapters four and five, and just for the sake of time, we can't dive into chapter five. But there's, in chapter four, verse eight, the song we just talked about, the living creatures, then you got the elders in 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11. Then in chapter five, both groups come together, and then a myriad of angels start singing. And you'll notice Chapters 4 and 5, this throne room of God, there's no mention of any of us. It's a little alarming. It's a little surprising. Like, where are you and I in this throne room scene? Well, we get one little footnote at the end, the last verse, verse 13 of chapter 5, when John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea 
and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We get lumped in with all of, create, all of the creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth because worship's not about us. It's about God. God is on that throne. Have you ever noticed the most powerful worship songs, the songs that are sung at all different churches, the songs that around the world, the songs that have an enduring quality are songs that give glory to God. They, vary, they, they might mention us here and there, but they're primarily about God and who he is, how mad, majestic, how powerful, how holy, how merciful he is. You know, on any tour that you go on, there's always a center point. It may not be a geographical center point, but it's the crown jewel or it's the highlight of the tour. And everything else is located in reference to that center point. At Virginia Tech, like I mentioned, it was a drill field. It separated the academic side and the residential side. And when you were describing something on campus, you would describe it in relation to the drill field. And it's very clear in this these chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, and even in the whole book of Revelation, the center point of John's heavenly vision is the throne. In chapters 4 through 5, it's mentioned 19 times. In the book of Revelation, it's mentioned 40 times. In fact, everything is described in location, in reference to the location of the throne. The 24 elders are around the throne. From the throne comes flashes of lightning. Before the throne are seven torches. Around the throne are four living creatures. And most importantly, seated on the throne is God Almighty. The throne symbolizes the absolute sovereignty of God. And what's being communicated to John is no matter how intense the persecution and opposition that these churches are experiencing. Chapter four sets the tone that God is on his throne. The whole point of John's vision is that he and the churches that he's writing to and us here today must come up regularly to see the reality that God is on his throne and we need to find our orientation in relation to that throne. We need to come up through times of prayer, through reading the Bible, through Sunday morning worship, through midweek services like tonight, through small groups, when we can gather around together and say, I know you're tired. I know you're sick. I know you're having a tough time at work. I know you're having this relational conflict, but God is on his throne, and there's singing, and there's worshiping, an eternal worship, an eternal song happening in heaven. And nothing here on this earth can take away that reality. It's funny, I visited Virginia Tech a couple years ago and I was walking around on campus and I got to a, an intersection and I looked down and there was a sign on the, uh, I guess it was uh, pasted to the, the sidewalk and it had in big bold letters, look up. It said something to the effect of, uh, you're, you're, what you're, what you're uh, watching on your cell phone or what you're looking at is not worth your life. Something to that effect. I thought, how ironic. I mean, I love my millennial generation. I'm a proud millennial. We get a lot of flack. But I thought, man, that's pretty sad that they literally have to tell us, hey, look up from your phone so you don't get hit by a car in an intersection. You know, the only way you can miss the tour is if you're preoccupied. 
And for us, I don't think it's as much persecution like the churches then, at least not yet. And it's not isolation and abandonment like John on the island of Patmos. It's distraction. Distraction keeps us from experiencing the throne room of God. Sights, sounds, thrones, and phones. I'm not a big hater of my cell phone. I actually enjoy my cell phone. I used to have a camera, a notebook, a Walkman, a to-do list, a Garmin GPS, a calendar, a scanner, an alarm clock, a calculator. I guess I really don't need this, but I just, I just still keep it around. But now I just have this. Just have this phone. And in many ways, it's made my life so much better. I'm more consolidated. I'm more efficient. I feel more connected. So I'm not telling you today to get rid of your cell phone and exchange your Bible apps for ancient scrolls. <laughs> but over the last couple months, I've noticed that in many ways, my phone has replaced the throne. And seated on the throne of my phone is not the one whom the elders and the living creatures cry holy, but it's me. And if the terminology is any indication, the selfies, the iPhone, the group, me, I don't think I'm alone. We are addicted to distraction. In fact, the average person checks their smartphone every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives. 73% of Christians admitted to checking social media on their phone before spiritual disciplines, and I am among the 73%. While we have grown more efficient, we've also grown more anxious and depressed. Our phones aren't necessarily the issue. They simply magnify the issue, which is our, in our hearts. So why are we so addicted to our phones? I want to give you three suggestions and then give three applications. First, the things that make our phones a more attractive throne than the throne of God is that they offer a small taste of endless delight. You go onto Pinterest, you go onto Facebook, you go onto Instagram, you go onto YouTube, and you can scroll for hours. How many times have you got onto YouTube thinking you're going to have a five-minute diversion, and two hours later, you look up and you're watching kitty cat videos? Our phones are like a sputtering plane. They're designed to take us to blissful heights, but they leave us feeling like we've never really gotten off the ground. Addiction to phone leads to stress, anxiety, distraction, difficulty sleeping. But maybe the endless amusement our hearts crave revealed that we were made for eternal worship. See, these living creatures that cry, holy, 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 I used to think, man, aren't they kind of bored just kind of doing the same refrain over and over again for all of eternity? But Revelation shows us they're not bored. They're not bored. They're enraptured. They're undone. They're utterly ruined. They're ultimately fulfilled because they were created to take in an eternal beauty. Number two, the phone promises relational connectedness that we long for through messaging apps, social media, 
phone calls. Do we still do those phone calls? I think we still do those. Yet we're more alone statistically than any time in history. In fact, the country of England has just appointed a minister of loneliness. It's serious because of an epidemic of loneliness happening there. Washington, D.C., I think London was 40% of adults live alone. Washington, D.C., and they appointed this minister of loneliness. Washington, D.C. is at 65%. We look at Yelp reviews, likes of photos and videos on social media, viral YouTube videos. They reveal that we love to revel and to behold in community, but not to revel in videos, sports center highlights, music videos. God has placed a desire in us to worship together. We were created to find security in our place and community among the 24 elders, among the four living creatures, with a myriad of angels, with the four living creatures in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, beholding our glorious God. Our phones reveal that we long for that community. Number three, the reason why we find our addiction or our phones a better, a better throne than the throne room of God is because the phone offers to enthrone us. We choose what we watch, how long we watch, and why we watch as we amass likes, followers, and friends. The irony is that as we're seated on our throne, our phone, we can't even control the five inches of metals and touchscreen and battery that really controls us. We are a terrible God. Our finite lives are a blip on the eternal timeline, disappearing faster than the 24-hour Instagram story. Unlike the one who sits on the throne, who was and is and is to come. So how do we exchange our phone for the throne? How do we come up like John did and walk through the same open door in an age of distraction? I want to give you three ideas in closing. One is to use your phone unapologetically for the glory of God. Use your, your camera app to capture the gifts of joy, love, and family that comes from God. Use your note-taking app to stay organized, knowing that God created this world in order. Accomplish to-dos with a to-do app, knowing that even painting a backyard fence gives a small glimpse of your future role of reigning with Jesus Christ. Listen to music on Google, on Google Play or iTunes, enjoying songs that echo the praise of God. Wake up with the alarm clock ready to make disciples. Open up your YouVersion Bible app and behold your God. Secondly, selectively limit your phone usage to behold God. We are limited creatures, as much as we don't want to admit it. Unlike God, we have a beginning, and we will have an end. So we can embrace our limited nature. And these phones that seem limitless, we can remove fruitless apps, turn off endless notifications, silence messages in the morning, late at night. And just because our phones can do something doesn't mean we should say yes to everything that our phone offers. And lastly, turn off your phone for the glory of God. Turn it off, baby. You want to text me? You want to call me? You're going to have to wait. I found out that I cannot rest very well with 
my phone on. We have Mondays as our day off because obviously we're working on Sunday as pastors. And I find myself oftentimes on Monday going back to my phone over and over again and a day that's supposed to be rest isn't restful. So I've started just turning off my phone. At dinner time with the kids, just turning off the phone. During the evening times, turning off the phone and God forbid, I'll have to respond tomorrow. To be completely honest, this has been a struggle for me. So I'm in this struggle with you. But let's be a church that struggles together to walk through the open door of heaven. That struggles to take in the sights and sounds of the throne room of God. And to use our phones to behold the one who's seated on the throne. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you that you have given us technology, our phones, and these are incredible gifts from you. God, the reality is it didn't take us three hours on a horse and buggy to get here tonight. There's a convenience, there's an efficiency, there's a productivity that comes through technology, that comes through our phones. And Lord, we don't want to despise that. We want to use that for your glory. And yet, God, so many times we find ourselves distracted. We find ourselves distantly removed from the throne room and from you, Lord, who's seated on the throne. So God, give us, Holy Spirit, specific ways to unplug, to limit our usage. God, give us specific apps to close and specific apps to download. God, give us specific things that your Holy Spirit is highlighting, not to to be legalist, not to say, oh, I'm better than you as a Christian. I use my phone more. I use my phone less but so that we can, like those elders, like those angels, like those living creatures, like all creation in heaven and on earth and under the earth, behold your majesty. In Jesus' name, amen.